Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world the dregs of all things, even until now. Let's pray. God, I do, again, just thank you for your word and all that you have said to us, God. And, and once again, Lord, we, we come to you because we, we want to hear you and to be instructed and led by you, God. We want to, to walk um, in Christ and that his life and ways would be, be reflected in us, Lord, that you would be honored and exalted. So I pray, God, that you would minister to each of us as we need from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> In this um, fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is wrapping up a section that began back in chapter 1. And he's been focusing here... Um, it, just in a cursory reading, it appears that his focus is on the division that is starting to happen in this church over men, Apollos, Peter, Paul. But really, the, the issue is, is more the living out of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in particular, the significance of the cross. And you'll recall that, that Paul began this book with nine verses in, first chap, in, in, first, in the first chapter about the believer's identity with Christ, about the person of Jesus Christ and what it means to be in him. Wonderful introduction. And so that becomes the, 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 the foundation of everything else that he's going to say. He will appeal to them to not be divisive, and all these appeals throughout the book will be based upon, first and foremost, who Christ is and their identity with him. You really... You know, it's hard to imagine that you could go wrong in focusing on the person of Jesus Christ and the believer's identification with him. I remember the first day in a class in seminary taught by Dwight Pentecost, he told us the most neglected doctrine in all of Christianity is the doctrine of the believer's identification with Jesus. And I just wanted to shout, Amen, Hallelujah. Let's spend a whole semester talking about the believer's identification in Christ. It is probably the most neglected doctrine in all of Christianity. 
But as with all doctrine, as hard as it is sometimes to imagine that a good thing could be turned bad, even with the doctrine of the believer's identity in Christ, a good thing can be made bad. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here when he says now in verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. And I think not just what's written in the Old Testament, but what he's already written in this letter about the believer's identity in Christ and also what he has written specifically about Paul and Apollos. I carry a bookmark in my Bible called Your True Identity in Christ. It's an encouragement to read through this. It's something that we too often forget. But having said that, there is no doctrine of Scripture that doesn't come with it the possibility of going too far, including the doctrine of our, of our identity with Jesus Christ. Well, how do we do that? If we think that being one with Jesus means that we have somehow become elevated above all the problems in life. We have gone too far. If we think that being one with Christ means that we, as he says in verse 8, are already filled, have already become rich, have become kings, we have gone too far. The one chapter in Scripture that helps me most with balancing this truth of our identity in Christ with living in a fallen world is Romans chapter 8. I love that chapter. And in it, Paul starts out by listing everything that it means for the Holy Spirit to be dwelling in the Christian. All the benefits that come from having Christ in you. But then he ends the chapter by saying, creation's groaning. We are groaning. The Spirit of God is groaning. We don't even know how to pray in view of living in a fallen world, even though the Spirit of God lives in us. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There is a tension, and we can go too far and act as though that if you're in Christ, you're already filled. You're already rich. You're already reigning. And I think we set ourselves up for great disappointment. But we also begin to exalt ourselves. And we become arrogant. And we become divisive in the body of Christ. So when Paul says, I've applied these things figuratively to myself and Apollos, so that you might learn not to exceed what is written. Well, what has he said about Paul and Apollos? Remember, they are merely servants, doulos, they're also servants of a different kind, under roars, and they were also stewards. That's it. And Paul says, if you go beyond that and elevate us beyond what I've just described, doulos, common servants, under rower servants, stewards of the mysteries of God, and you make us out to be something more than that, you've gone, be, be, you've gone ahead of what has been written. And you are acting arrogantly, divisively, 
You've gone too far. Don't do it. So don't go too far in what you believe about the apostles. Don't go too far in what you believe about your identity with Jesus Christ. Who was the first person in the Bible to go too far? Eve. Remember what she said to the serpent? Has God said that you can't eat of that tree? And she says, God says that we can eat of any tree except for the one tree. In fact, God said, if you even touch it, you will die. She went too far. God didn't say you can't touch it. Where did she come up with that? She took the truth of God's word and went one step beyond it. And we have, all of us, have the same tendency. Just three passages quickly on this that are, I think, worth cross-referencing. 2 John, chapter, 2 John, verse 9. And one who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Don't go beyond what Scripture says. Proverbs 30, verse 6. Speaks about not adding to God's word. Do not add to his words lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. Don't go beyond what God has said. And the one that probably we all know best is from Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which, is, which are written in this book. Don't add to what God's saying, that's going too far, and don't take away from what God is saying. I tend to think that most theological divisions are rooted in simply going one step beyond what Scripture says. I mean, we could talk about tongues. That's not a source of division in this fellowship, but it's been a source of division within the body of Christ for many years. And it's because not the issue for most Christians is not whether or not tongues is valid today, but the real issue becomes should every person speak in tongues? And that's where you go beyond what Scripture says. Because there is no place in Scripture that says every Christian should speak in tongues. In fact, Paul would argue just exactly the opposite in this very letter of 1 Corinthians. You think about where Christians are divided today. And typically, somebody is going one small step beyond what Scripture has said. We're taking it too far. Or Scripture is spoken clearly and we are minimizing it and taking away from what Scripture says says. Learn not to exceed what is written in order that you might not become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. We are one in Christ. As 
It's one of the most significant doctrines there is of our union with Jesus in his indwelling life. But that does not mean that there is not a not yet to our faith. And at this present time, even though we are one with Christ and Christ is in us, we are not yet filled. We are not yet rich. We are not yet reigning as kings. So then he says in verse 7, For who regards you as superior? I stopped and thought about that for a while. I've been teaching 1 Corinthians for a long time, and I don't think I ever stopped and thought, well, what is the answer to that question? For who regards you as being superior? And, it, and I think it, it, it's implying what? Nobody. <laughs> because you're Corinthians. And the Corinthians were, the city of Corinth was viewed as the cesspool of the world. You think you're superior. But does anybody else think that about you? Nobody. You're Corinthians. Now, are you blessed? Yes. Have you been enriched with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Yes. Are you one with Christ? Yes. Are you sealed until the day of redemption? Yes. But are you superior to other believers? No. That's his point. There are no superior Christians. We are equally blessed in Christ. Some people may be smarter. Some people may have a better knowledge of the Bible. But nobody is superior. There are no superior Christians. And Paul's saying you've regarded the, the apostles, maybe your favorite apostle, as being superior to the other apostles. You're not superior. There are no superior Christians. Some have greater responsibility, but there are no superior Christians. Who did God choose? The weak and the foolish. He's going to use his own example here, as we've read, where he's going to say, we have become the scum of the world and the dregs of all things. Not we have become superior in relation to everyone else. And why, if you are not superior, then why this emphasis that you are holding, Corinthians, on the superiority of some men over others, and the, consequently the inferiority of others? I wonder if it's because, you can almost hear Paul saying, because you're trying to make yourselves feel superior by being in association with someone that you regard to be superior. Remember who the apostles are. They are servants. They are stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul never began to imply we are superior to everybody else. And remember who you are. You have nothing that you didn't receive, he's going to say in this passage. You have nothing to boast in. You ever been around a person who maybe inherited their wealth? You know, and they're stinking rich. They didn't do anything to get it. They just were born into the right family. And they can sometimes be so arrogant. And you go, you have nothing that you didn't receive. What makes you think you're better than everybody else? 
Remember who you are. You have nothing that you didn't receive. You have nothing to boast in. And remember, God calls the weak and the foolish. Verse 8. This is Paul's <coughs> sanctified sarcasm. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have already become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. There is a time and place for sarcasm. Not usually very effective, but there is a time and place for it. There is actually a, a designation for this, not even a developed theology at this time. Today it's a developed theology that Paul is referencing here. And it's called Kingdom Now Theology. You type that in, Google Kingdom Now Theology. You will be amazed at all the information that comes up. It is largely from the charismatic Pentecostal side of evangelicalism, not exclusively, but primarily. And it is this thought that we are now reigning on earth with Christ and that we can bring in, usher in his kingdom. This is where, and again, it's not everything about it's bad, but this is where even, you know, you heard about, you know, prayer walks, walking around a, a neighborhood, walking around a city doing a prayer walk. It's kingdom now theology that initiated that. Because they were saying, everything in this circle we claim for you, O oh God. It's your territory. It's now your kingdom because we've claimed it. Nothing wrong with walking in a circle and praying for everybody inside the circle. That's a good thing. But we don't bring in Christ's kingdom. The king is going to bring in his kingdom. Not the church. The king is going to bring in his kingdom. And the scripture tells us that as, as much as we should pray for our rulers and that we would live a peaceful life, and as much as we should seek the evangelism of this world, the scripture tells us until Jesus comes again, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. So if you have bought into this kingdom now theology, I can tell you on the authority of God's word, you're going to be very disappointed. Because his kingdom is not coming until he brings it. And it's going to get worse on this planet until that day. It doesn't mean there's not going to be peaks and valleys. But we are not going to establish his kingdom. He is going to establish his kingdom. It's going to get worse until that time, generally speaking. Paul is exhibit one for this. He hates this theology. He does not hate the theology of our union with Christ. But he hates the theology of him going one step beyond that and say that means everything right now should be as it will be when Christ comes to the earth. So you can pray against every negative thing and claim it and it's going to go away. No. Sometimes, not always. I believe we've had a miracle that's happened here in the church recently. It carries spots on her lungs have gone away. Praise God. We pray for miracles. And we see God on occasion do miracles like that. 
But that does not mean that we claim miracles and we demand that his kingdom come now and that every single illness is going to be healed because we pray for it in faith. We will be greatly disappointed if we believe that. But God heals, and we should continue to ask him to do so. He says in verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all. See, these men were not putting themselves on pedestals. They weren't expecting to be treated as superior to everybody else. He said, look at our lives. Which one of us is not suffering? Which one of us is not being mistreated for our faith? I think Paul could even say, which one of us isn't sick, having physical problems going on in our bodies that God has not healed? Because that was certainly true of Paul. God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. Why would he throw that in? Because last of all is a reference to the Roman procession. When the Roman army went out and conquered some people, they would have a big, what we would call, ticker tape parade down the city of, of, of Rome. And at the front of the parade would be all the victors. And this is where the, you know, the flowers would be thrown out, you know, all the people throwing, not ticker tape, but throwing flowers out the windows, and, and the men are tromping on the flowers, and the horses are tromping on the flowers. This is where the figure of a sweet aroma comes from. Some, it is an aroma unto life. That's the people who are at the front of the procession. For others, the same aroma of Christ that is an aroma unto death. Those are the people who are at the end of the procession. Because the last people to get marched through the city are all the ones who are doomed. They're the ones going to be taken to the Roman Colosseum and they're going to be fed to the lions. They are the ones who are condemned to death. God has exhibited us apostles as last of all men condemned to death. So when you look at us, you're not seeing a lot of victory, Paul says, depending on how you define victory. You see men condemned to death. And I would indeed, I'm sorry, again, verse 9, Condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are prudent in Christ. I'd rather be prudent than be a fool. You know, I, I tell you, I just the other day I went to get. Um, my truck inspected. And um, there's only one inspection guy in comfort, okay? And so this guy's gotten to know me that I'm an idiot. And so he just said, here comes the idiot. This is the village idiot. You know, he kind of, you know, I don't even know my name. He just knows this is the village idiot. Because um, I'm the same guy that took my motorcycle down to get inspected a few years ago. And, and he, he, wouldn't let, he wouldn't just put a sticker on it like all the other inspection guys had. He wanted me to ride the motorcycle and do a quick stop. Well, I hadn't practiced a quick stop. And I forgot all my motorcycle training. And so I got, he said, just bring it up to 30 and, and hit the brakes when you hit this yellow line. And so I got it up to about 40, 45. And, and, and then I, when I hit the brakes, I hit the front brake as hard as I hit the back brake, which you're not supposed to do, but I completely forgot. And so now the front tire is just doing one of these. And man, I am just on the side, skidding down the pavement. And I'm just throwing, I'm an idiot. And, you know, and he comes running over. Another guy came running over across the street. And they stood the motorcycle up for me. And, 
And, um, you know, and I, I didn't ruin the motorcycle, so I did it again. And I passed the test. And I rode home and sold the motorcycle. Brian, <laughs> Brian's enjoying my motorcycle. So I walk in this week to get my truck inspected. Only problem is, wrong vehicle. And so they're telling me, you got six months left on this vehicle. Like, I can't read the inspection sticker. So I go, I'll go get the other car. So I come back, and he comes out, and he's smiling. You brought the right car down this time, huh? And I go, I don't know how I lived this long. You know? <laughs> he didn't even say anything. I would much rather be exhibited as being prudent, smart, wise. Who wouldn't? Rather than as a fool. Sometimes we play games around the table at the house, and and, and somebody loses badly, and it's usually not me, you know, but some, you know, it can't happen. <laughs> and, so, and so I have taken to saying to the loser, thank you for your ministry to us. You just, you, God brought you here to let all of us, of the rest of us, feel so good about ourselves. Well, nobody wants that. I don't even want to keep score, because I always keep score. I'll sometimes put winner at my name, and put loser at someone else's name, usually Audrey's. And, you know, she's gotten used to it. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the loser. Everybody wants to be the winner. Nobody wants to be the fool. But Paul says, God is exhibiting us, making a spectacle of us, presenting us to the world as fools. There's no fun in that. We are weak. No fun in that. You are strong. We are weak. You're strong. You are distinguished. We are without honor. Now think about those three couplets. Fools, weak, without honor. Does that remind you of anything else? It ought to remind us of the gospel message itself because of what he said in chapter 1. And it ought to remind us of Jesus Christ himself who appeared to this world foolish, weak, and without honor. So you see where Paul's going with this? The problem's not in being foolish, weak, and without honor because that's Christ life being reproduced in you. See, this is your union with Christ. It's not just victory as the world would determine victory. But identity in Christ means Christ is reproducing in us what is true of Him. And if Christ looked foolish and weak and without honor, guess what? You are one with Christ. And when your life is not looking foolish and weak and without honor, Jesus is not being seen in you. There's some other message being preached than the message of the cross. Yes, Christ is risen from the dead. But the message of the cross is not annulled because of the resurrection. We hold to both. The cross is being replicated in each of our lives, as is the resurrection. It is not one or the other.
to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our hands. Now here's the miracle of the resurrection. When we are reviled, we bless. See, the identity with Christ does not mean you're not going to be reviled. It means when you are reviled, you respond supernaturally. You bless. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, and we will be, it's promised in the Beatitudes, we're going to be persecuted. Paul said the same, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When we are persecuted, supernaturally, we endure. What do you do when you're persecuted? What do I do? I want to run. I, don't, well, I didn't sign up for this. What do you do when you're reviled? I want to retaliate. Who do you think you are? Paul says we don't retaliate and we don't quit. Supernatural. When we are slandered, and you know, one of the parties that was guilty of slandering Paul was this very church. And that's the, he is demonstrating such grace here because he's not saying, and by the way, you have slandered me. Because they have. Especially comes out in 2 Corinthians. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. You can't always bring about conciliation with the person who's slandering you. But Paul says, we try. Now, I've had a little conflict come up in my life in the last few days. And I don't like it. I felt misrepresented. I felt like I've been attacked. And I'm having to preach this passage. And I can tell you, I don't have a great memory, a great brain. You all don't know that. And, and, and I, and, but this has been a week where, without having my Bible in front of me, and I've not memorized this passage. All week long, virtually every verse of this passage has just been coming to my mind. It's a God thing. Because God wants this to be fleshed out in my life. We are one with Jesus. And people that are one with Christ get reviled. They get persecuted. They get slandered. But because Christ lives in us. When we are reviled, Christ blesses. When we are persecuted, Christ endures. When we are slandered, Christ tries to conciliate. And what is the result when you are reviled and persecuted and slandered and you respond supernaturally and Jesus is seen supernaturally in your life because you are responding in a way that is so not you. It is just Jesus. And you can't even take credit for it. You're amazed at yourself at how you're responding. What is the result? What does Paul say here? We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things. See, if you buy into the kingdom now theology... How, that, part, that doesn't apply. 
how can you, if you believe that everything that is true about the kingdom of Jesus is to be true now in your own experience, I can tell you there's no scum and there are no dregs in the kingdom of Jesus. None. But Paul says, we have become the scum of the world and the dregs of all things until now. Wow. If you think you were the church at Corinth and you've just had this read on a Sunday morning, would you feel admonished? Would you feel rebuked? And Paul goes, listen, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. You, ever, you know, sometimes when we, when, we, when we have to correct people, whether it can be our children or it can be a friend or whatever, so many times we have to just preface it by saying, understand me, I am not mad at you. That's what Paul's having to do here. I am not trying to shame you, but I am admonishing you because I love you as a father loves his children. And you are my children because I led you to Jesus. I am your spiritual father. That's all this is about. You, you're my children. You, would not have, you may have many teachers, but you only have one father, and that's me. Verse 16, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Children naturally imitate their dads. You can look over here on this side of the room and you can see it about me. Okay? I'm told all the time. You know, as a man, I don't know who's, who's more like you. Is it Nathan? Is it Michael? Is it Ryan? In fact, I think Audrey might be more like you than all of the kids are. And, and they, they look like you. They, they talk like you. They have the same mannerisms as you. Well, how'd they get that? They've been watching videos of dad. And, they, and it's an assignment. Every day, for an hour a day, I want you to you know, get it down. See, that, that's how, <coughs> how comedians imitate, isn't it? They get the videotapes, and they study them, and they study them until they can have the exact mannerisms as the person they're trying to, to make fun of. That is not how imitation takes place in a family. It's unconscious. So Paul's not saying, I want you to consciously imitate me. That's not the Christian life. But Christ's life is unconsciously imitated as we yield to him and abide in him we begin to take on his characteristics and Paul says it is unconscious that a child would begin to imitate his father and Paul says there ought to be that imitation it's not conscious it's not put on but it ought to naturally be taking place for this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you and teach you of my ways. Listen to this. And he will remind you and teach you, remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere. What? I thought you taught the gospel. I taught, thought you taught theology. Paul says, I teach my ways. Wow. And there's no self-righteousness. There's no arrogance here. There, this is what Bible schools ought to be like. If Paul were your Bible teacher, and he ran a Bible school in Ephesus, he would say the goal here is not for you to have a notebook full of good notes. 
The goal here is for what is true of Christ to be reproduced in your life. So we're going to talk theology, Paul would say. Let's have a lesson on propitiation. Everybody's going, propitiation? What does that mean? Well, let's talk about that. Propitiation means that the wrath of God against sin has, has been completely satisfied. God does not need to be propitiated by us. He has already been propitiated by Jesus Christ. So you don't have to offer any, any offerings. Jesus is the offering for our sin. You don't have to try and win God's favor. You already have God's favor. See, that is solid doctrine. But Paul didn't just teach solid doctrine. He modeled the doctrine that he was preaching. So if you believe that Jesus Christ has propitiated the Father and the wrath of God has been satisfied, should that impact the way that you live? Yeah. So now you can approach boldly to the throne of grace, as the author of Hebrews says. Why? Because God's been propitiated. You've got no reason not to go before God, even though you know that you have sinned. You can still go before Him because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And God has been propitiated. See, it changes everything. If I believe, really, if I believe that God has been satisfied, there's nothing I need to do to satisfy if I believe that God is holy, I don't have to try and discipline myself in order to become holy. God is holy, and I am in Christ, and He reproduces Himself in me. So I don't have to, it's not about self discipline, it's about the holiness of God. And you can go right through the doctrines, whatever they are. And Paul says, Timothy's going to come and remind you of my <coughs> ways. Because there's no distinction, as there shouldn't be. You could look at Paul's life. You could hear Paul's teaching, sit under his teaching and look at his life and see, fleshed out in his life, what he was teaching. Doctrine is to be incarnated into life. That is the goal and the essence of teaching and discipleship. Major Thomas, founder of Torchbearers, boy, he, he would harp on a lot of stuff. Military guy. That's why he kept his, his title major all through his life. He never stopped being military. And, um, and he would say things like, don't tell me that you are living in Christ, living from Christ, and I walk into your dorm and it looks like a pigsty. He goes, how's that Christ? Christ isn't living in this dorm. A pig is living in this dorm. And I go, wow. Man, that was that kind of guy. But he says, it's not academic. Your oneness with Christ. All these truths that we're talking about, they are not mere academic platitudes. They are to be incarnated into our lives. And Paul says, they are in mine. And I'm not just teaching truths. I am teaching me, my ways. Not because he's the authority, but he is saying there's no distinction between the message and the example. And the cross of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross, ought to be displayed in humility. Do I believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth, humbled himself, and died on a cross for my sin? Amen. We'd all say amen. Then Paul would say, where's the humility? Practice what you preach. Live it out. 
can we teach our ways? Just quickly to the end of the chapter. Verse 18, now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Very important caveat there, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those (coughs) who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. I think Paul's being a little, again, sarcastic here. You people that are so focused on the kingdom being now, I'm going to find out where the power of your thinking is, the power of your words is. Because the power of the kingdom is not in these proclamations that we should never suffer and that every person should be lifted above crisis and above sickness and above the fallenness of the world. The power of the kingdom, as he's just said, is when you're reviled, you bless. When you're persecuted, you endure. When you're slandered, you try to conciliate. The power of the kingdom is the power of a transformed life. One day, Jesus will come again in power. And he will utterly transform this world in every respect. All the governments are going to be destroyed. There will be one government. He didn't come to renew governments. He is going to come and destroy every government on earth. There is no government on this earth that Jesus wants to renew. He established, there's no government that hasn't been established by him, but there's no government here that's going to be renewed to be perfect. We should pray for our governments. I've already said that. But when Jesus returns again, he is going to destroy every government on this planet because they are not true to him and they never will be. He will come with power. Amen and hallelujah. But until that day, the power of the king is made known in how we live in a fallen world. It is not in taking away the fallenness of this world. Supernatural. To endure. To conciliate. Try to conciliate. To bless. How good are you at dying? I feel like that's what the Lord's been saying to me this past week. I don't like dying. And when we are being slandered, reviled, persecuted, and my trials have been so much less than that, so much less. And it comes down to, am I going to fight for myself? Or am I going to humble myself? Is it going to be victory? Or is it going to be the message of the cross? And the thing about the message of the cross, you can't even tell people. The reason I'm responding the way I am is because I want to see Jesus be seen. (laughs) You can't say that. Because you die. And you let them think what they want to think. You bless. You try to conciliate. You endure. But you can't even tell them what you're doing. 
Because all you're wanting to do is just live in Christ and have Him be seen. I started out looking at this passage just thinking, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to preach a sermon from this chapter. And God's been saying, well, let me preach it to you. And he's been preaching to me on this passage all week long, big time. And I thank the Lord for it. I'll close this in prayer. We, God, thank you for our union with Jesus. We are one with him. And we thank you for his life. But it is not a life that insulates us from the hard things of this world. But it is a life that endures. It's a life that blesses. A life that tries to conciliate. And God, we just want to not put ourselves to death because we can't. You never ask us to. But in our oneness with Jesus, we know that that begins with understanding our oneness with his death and his burial. So that we might walk in the newness of his life. So Father, I pray that we would come to Jesus and identify with him and his sufferings with everything that we endure everything that comes at us, that Jesus would be seen and all these glorious truths, Lord, that we each confess, that they would be fleshed out in us to your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.